Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How do you most effectively draw people in from the sidelines to the center of public life? Then, once they are there, how do you support them to translate their people power into making change at scale? across many cities, or a country, or even the world. Our Changemaker Chat guest is a prolific researcher, and she has dug into exactly this question. Based in the United States, she's the author of three books that all deal with civic and political participation, collective action, organising, and social change. Harry Hahn is a professor of political science at John Hopkins University and the inaugural director of the Stavros Nyakos Foundation's Agora Institute, which seeks to design and test new mechanisms for strengthening civic engagement. She previously set up the P3 Lab, which examined the way civic and political organisations make the participation of ordinary people possible, probable and powerful. A few years back, Harry was involved in the Obama campaign, helping to lead policy advisory groups and working on government reform. Today on Changemaker Chats, we explore the journey that saw Harry craft an analysis of social change based on the form of people's participation. We crack open her understanding of what makes mobilising and organising different and why organising offers such powerful possibilities for strengthening our democracy. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. So, Harry... You know, one of the things that I'm, uh, you do some spectacular research on organising and making change in the world, but I, I imagine some of our listeners may not know uh, much about your research. What makes you a change maker? What makes your research import, important to the process of social change? Sure. So I study the practices of community organizing and social movements. And I think of the work as falling into two buckets. One is how do organizations engage people most effectively in ways that pull them off the sidelines into public life? But then two, just because people get involved, we know that they don't always build power. So how do organizations translate the actions of their people into power for the change that they want? And I think it's so important to making change because it helps us sharpen the strategy and the choices that we make about how we make the change that we want. So we're going to get, we're going to have plenty of time speaking about the kind of analysis that you've built and the insights that you've gained into how uh, people can make effective change, both bringing people to the table and then exercising power in doing so. But I'm curious to understand what brought you into the world of change making and into this kind of work. 
Sure. So I grew up as a daughter of Korean immigrants in Houston, Texas. And so I wasn't born in Houston, but I lived most of my life in the United States. And my parents had originally come over to the United States in the early 1970s. And when they came over, um, Korea was basically a developing economy at the time. And they sort of showed up with the proverbial $100 in your pocket that um, many immigrants have. And the idea was that they were going to come over and my dad was going to go to graduate school and then they would go back to Korea um, because Korea is a very patriarchal society and my dad is the oldest son. And so his job was to go back and take care of his family. But because my dad had to work his way through graduate school, it took him a lot longer than he thought it would. And um, so he delivered Chinese food on the back of his bike and did all sorts of things to kind of put himself through school. And by the time he finished grad school, my brother and I were born and we had already started school in the United States. And my parents decided they wanted to raise us there. And so I think a lot of what I saw growing up was the experience of my parents trying to figure out what does it mean to raise children in the United States And also, how do we make it, right? How do we reconstruct and build a life for ourselves in a country where we have no family? Um, they didn't have a lot of connections then when they first came. I mean, of course, now it's very different because that's where they live. You know, I remember at the dinner table, we would talk about things like, you know, how do you butter bread? <laughs> oh, wow. You know, things that seem so natural if you grow up in an American family or, you or know. Or an, an Australian family or, too, yeah, right? an Australian family. And, and we, you know, but it's actually very complicated. Do you slice it first? Do you break it? How do you, what do you do with all the crumbs? <laughs> totally. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so you were able to, I mean, your, your parents became very successful, in, in, in like a, the sort of the American dream in a way. Yeah, my dad um, finished his PhD when um, I was in school, in elementary school, and then he became a professor at the University of Houston, which is why we grew up there mostly. And yeah, so a lot of what I saw, I think, in my parents' life was them, you know, kind of living out that dream, so to speak. We, when we first moved to Houston, um, we moved into a neighborhood right before there was a big economic downturn in Houston. So Houston is a city that's completely dependent on the oil economy. And when the price of oil goes up, the economy is doing great. When the price of oil goes down, then the economy is not doing as well. And there's a big downturn in the 80s when we first moved there. So the neighborhood that we lived in, I remember everyone moved out. And when they moved, when the people moved back in, it was a very multiracial, you know, immigrant community, but it was a, more of a working class community. And so that was sort of where I grew up. But the school that I went to wasn't the neighborhood public school. It was the local, it was not actually the local, but it was a Catholic school in the area because my parents felt like the public schools in the neighborhood had big gang problems and they weren't sort of schools that they wanted to send us to. So we went to the Catholic school. And so I kind of lived in this sort of fluid class environment where the kids I went to school with were different from the kids that were, that, li that lived around that me in my neighborhood. With. Right. And then also, you, and, and you're then negotiating this cultural piece of how do you do the white bread as well as being highly successful in, in sort of more defined American terms, you know, your dad becoming a professor and so forth. So you're in the middle of all this fluidity. Right. I can sort of, I can only imagine how it was growing up. So did you, obviously you decided that you were going to go to university. Yeah. How, how does higher education fit into your sense of self? So my parents were very atypical Korean immigrants in some ways, but one of the ways in which they were really typical is that higher education was a big was a big thing. It was always very important. So it was always clear that we would go to college and that we should go to the best college that we can get into. And so my brother and I were fortunate we both got into Harvard and we oh, did wow. our, we did our undergraduate work there. And, you know, so I grew up in this very kind of fluid environment in the ways that you described, but none of it was politicized for me until mm. I went to college. And so when I 
I mean, I think when you're a kid, it's just like, this is life. Like whatever you grow up with, it's just like, this is how life is. And in some ways, it's hard to imagine that not everyone is having the same kind of experience that you are when you're a kid, of course. And and then I went to college and um, got involved in some student activism there. And that's where I began to develop a broader framework to kind of make sense of and understand a lot of experiences that I had had growing up. And why did you decide to get involved in student activism, do you think? Yeah, so I went to Catholic schools growing up because that was the school that my parents chose to send us. And the Catholic high school that I went to had a service requirement. So we all had to do 100 hours of community service work to graduate. And so I had gotten involved um, tutoring immigrants in English literacy, essentially, and really loved it. So when I went to college, I just wanted to continue the same kind of volunteer work. But the student organization that I was a part of that kind of was like this umbrella organization for all the social service groups at Harvard, basically was in a fight with the university. Oh, right. <laughs> so, um, because we were, we were we were an independent, student-run organization. We were had our own kind of nonprofit status. And the university was concerned about us going out into communities and driving vans and doing things in the name of Harvard, but not having the liability. And so they want to take greater control over the organization. Right. Which totally makes sense, but we were students. And of course, we didn't want them to take more control. Yeah. And so we decided to organize a big protest against the university. You know, so we were young and audacious and we thought we can just like organize this protest at Harvard Yard. And someone said, you know, it's actually kind of hard to do that. (laughs) And we thought, oh, really? And he said, yeah, you know, there's this class on community organizing. Maybe you should take it. And so I signed up for the class and that's how I ended up there. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. So you were trying to mobilize a big demonstration. Right. And then you ended up discovering organizing. Yeah. Well, what's so funny is that the class was taught by a guy named Marshall Gans. Mm. He's a famous organizer. He had been involved with the civil rights movement in the 1960s and then was a national organizing director for the migrant farm workers movement um, with Cesar Chavez. And at the time, he was doing his PhD at Harvard. He teaches a big class on community organizing now that's all, you know, it reaches people all over the world. People can do it online. People can do it online, and it has hundreds of people in this army of TAs. But when I took it, it was you know, 15 of us in a classroom with Marshall for three hours a week and just learning from him about organizing. And it was great. It was a transformative experience for me. Like it, it sort of really opened my eyes, I think, to a different way of seeing the world. And it gave me, like I said, an analysis to make sense of a lot of the experiences that I'd had growing up as a child of immigrants in this cross-cultural and kind of um, fluid socioeconomic environment. Yeah. So how do you how do you feel that that class, I mean, it, clearly it changed you. Sure. Obviously, it gave you a lot of tools that you still use in, in your work today. But how did it set you on the direction that you then took you know, to yeah, because you, because not everyone who wants to do organizing decides they want to research organizing. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I mean, for me, I think what the class really did is it gave me a political analysis around the service work that I was doing. Right. So up until then, I had really been focused on community service. I thought that I was going to go and run a nonprofit somewhere that provided social services or something like that. And this gave me a political analysis. So after college, I went and worked in politics in Washington, D.C. So I just kind of on a lark, I went and I found a job and was working for Bill Bradley, who is... Oh, wow. I yeah. was going to ask you about that in your, in your bio. Yeah. So Bill Bradley, at the time, he was just retiring from the 
U.S. Senate, but he had been a U.S. senator for 18 years. So I went and worked for him, and he had a small think tank that he had in D.C. Um, for a couple years, and then he ran for president in 2000 in the Democratic primary against Al Gore. So I worked for him during that time period, and that gave me a real glimpse into electoral politics and kind of the world of national party politics mm. in D.C., and I really loved it. But what I found was that when I felt caught up in the day-to-day work of campaigning and politics, I couldn't really step back and think about or make sense of what was happening. And so when he ran for president in 2000 and then he lost and I lost my job because the campaign ended, I thought, this is a great time to go to grad school. Yeah, <laughs> and so right. I went to grad school thinking that I would go to grad school and then go back and work in politics. Like I did never really thought that I would stay in academia. But once I got to grad school, what I found was that I think a lot of times people tend to think of research and the world of research as being very separate from the world of practice and organizing or politics or something like that, which is what I thought when I was going into it. And I sort of thought, this is a great chance to take five years and read books and someone's going to pay me to do it. Like, what could be better? But I realized through being in grad school and some projects that I got involved in that, like, research can actually play a really important role in helping to sharpen the strategic choices that people in the world of practice have to make, right? That because we have this ability to kind of get up on the balcony and look with fresh eyes on the work that's going on in the world, that we can help clarify the choices that people are making. And so I, I, I mean, that's what I figured out that I wanted to do. I really turned out to love it. And I love the teaching too. The teaching is obviously a big part of being a professor also. And I love working with students. Yep. Fantastic. So you sort of found your home. Yeah, I think so. I mean, in a way that I didn't really anticipate. So it's been yeah. great, though. But also what I love about your story is is that you, it's it's not like you did it by default. You tried a whole bunch of different forms of, of acting and being in the world, and it seemed to be the right place to combine your interests, skills, and capacity. Yeah, exactly. You know, I have students who always come into my office and they have this plan worked out for how their life is going to unfold. And, (laughs) you know, one of the things that I found was that I I definitely did not have as much intentionality about all the choices that I was making along the way as other people did. But I think it opened me up to a whole new set of experiences that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And now I just feel so lucky to be able to do what I do. Like, I feel like it's so great to have this opportunity to work with organizations and leaders all over the world and really try to understand their work and make sense of it and write about it and, you know, do analysis and research around it. And so now I just feel like it's the best job ever. (laughs) But I never would have thought that if you had asked me that coming out of college. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. You found the right space. Right. Now, before we get into your the research that you've been working on, say, in the last sort of eight to 10 years, I do want to ask you about, you did jump back into the, the politics space sure. a, a little bit with the Obama campaign. Tell us how you got involved in the Obama campaign. Yeah. So a lot of the people that I had worked with in the Bradley campaign went on to get involved in the Obama campaign. And um, I had maintained a lot of those relationships, um, you know, even while I was in grad school. And so Obama really became kind of rose to fame in 2004 when he made this big speech at the Democratic National Convention. And of course, like I was sort of taken, you know, swept up in that um, wave of enthusiasm. And when he decided to run for president in 2007, one of my colleagues who I'd known from the Bradley world reached out and asked if I'd be interested in joining the campaign. And at the time, I was an assistant professor at Wellesley College in Boston. And I was very tempted, except for the fact that I was pregnant with my first daughter. Oh, wow. (laughs) 
And so I just, I couldn't see how I could put all these things together, like living campaign life and having my first child and becoming a new mom and, you know, figuring out how to take leave and all these different kinds of things. And so I didn't take leave to actually join the campaign full time, but I got really involved in different pieces of the campaign. So I like co-led one of their um, policy advisory groups and did some work on government reform, which is some of the issues that he was really involved with. And then, of course, Marshall, who I had continued to do work with, got involved in shaping the Camp Obamas and a lot of the training that Mm. they did. And so, you know, got involved with doing research around that also, which is really fun. Yeah. It's a spectacular campaign. So all of that together, I mean, makes for a pretty interesting um, set of experiences to inform your ongoing research about Mm -hmm. how particularly how organizations can produce effective change. Mm-hmm. Let's get into the how. Like sure. what makes, you know, you know, how do you make change? How do you think change makers can be effective? What's your, you know, if if you were to give your summary of your analysis to our, to our listeners, what do you think it takes for change makers, particularly in organizations, to be powerful? I think these days there's so many organizations around the world that are doing amazing work um, in trying to get people involved in public life, right, and then translate that into power. And a lot of the work that my collaborators and I do is trying to is trying to kind of make the point that not all forms of engagement are the same, right? I think that we tend to think, oh, if someone takes action, then like that's 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 a form of power. And and it is at one level, but I think a lot of what we found through our research is that there's actually a distinction between different ways in which organizations get people involved. And so for example, one project that I did sort of looked at the difference between mobilizing and organizing, right? Right now there's this temptation for a lot of organizations to try to get to scale as quickly as possible. And a lot of the tools that we have nowadays make it easier than it ever was before to get as many people as possible to take more action than we ever have before. And that's true. And scale is really important, right, in terms of achieving the kind of wins that we want to achieve. But what I think we're trying to recover is also this idea that you also want to be organizing people, right? And at the core of organizing is not just getting people to take action, but instead it's engaging people in a transformative process through which they develop their own leadership, right? And their own capacity to make change. And so... If we think about it, organizing is essentially what gives us the depth to make the change that we want to really move power in the ways that we want. But if you really want to organize, the way in which you engage people would be very different than if you just want to mobilize. And so some of the work that I've done has been trying to unpack that to sort of make clear the different kind of choices that organizations can make in terms of what kind of asks they make of people, how they reach out to people, um, how they structure themselves, and so on and so forth. And maybe you can give, um, illustrate it through a story, like a, a contrasting story about an organisation, maybe one of your organisations that you studied, the difference between how they would engage people through mobilising versus organising. Sure. So the story that I tell all the time is about Alex Waters. He was an organizer with the Obama campaign in both 2008 and 2012. And he, in fact, was one of their most successful organizers. If you just look at his numbers, right, in terms of people that he was able to engage, leaders he was able to develop, and votes that that they got as a result. But his story is really interesting because I think it exemplifies the difference between mobilizing and organizing, right? So... Alex grew up um, thinking that he was going to be a professional athlete, and so he wanted to be a professional golfer. So he went to college in Iowa thinking that he was going to be an athlete. He um, played golf there. 
And during his freshman year, one year, a friend of his invited him out to a lake, his parents' lake house um, one weekend. And so he thought, oh, this is great. Of course I'm going to go. So he goes out with his friends to this lake house, and he's standing at the end of the dock one evening, and it's really windy. And the wind comes along, and it blows the hat off his head. And he looks, and he thinks, oh, man, it's my favorite hat. You know, I really don't want to lose it, but there it is kind of floating off in the water. What am I going to do? And he looks in the water and he thinks, you know what? I think it's deep enough. I'm just going to dive in and get my hat. So he dives into the water, not realizing that the water was much more shallow than he thought it was. And of course, you know, he broke a spinal cord and he was injured immediately. Life flighted out of there, had to go through years of rehab and had great medical care. But you fast forward and eventually the Obama campaign is recruiting him to join their campaign. And he says, now these, these are my words in a way, like I don't think they actually use these words, but he says, look, you know, I can't be an organizer. And they say, why not? And he says, well, because I can't do any of the things that organizers are supposed to do, right? I can't dial numbers on a phone in order to make phone calls to voters. I can't walk up and down a street to knock on doors to talk to voters. I can't even get paper off the printer to get my call sheet off the printer in the office, you know? And they say, he says, I can't be an organizer. And they say, you know, what you're thinking about is what, what I would now call traditional organizing, traditional mobilizing, right? Which is what most campaigns ask their organizers to do, right? Is they essentially hire 22-year-olds and then they work them to the bone for a year, asking them to make as much voter contact as humanly possible. And what we want you to do is something else because we're going to run a different kind of campaign. And the campaign that we're going to run is one where we want you to do actual organizing. And so what that means is that your job is not to be a voter contact machine. Instead, your job is to identify, recruit, and develop the leadership of leaders in the communities that we're trying to organize. So your job is to go out and find people who can be neighborhood team leaders, you know, recruit them to support the campaign and then develop their leadership and their capacity to talk to their neighbors and organize their own teams to have neighbor to neighbor conversations about the senator. And so that's what he did. And essentially the difference between what Alex thought he was going to do and what he ended up doing is the difference between mobilizing and organizing. And what we found in our research is that the organizations that are the most successful at sort of engaging people in ways that build power are organizations that are able to combine the two, that do both the organizing, which gives them the depth that they need, and the mobilizing, which gives them the breath that they need. Mm. So what will it take to spread? Like, I mean, I think it sounds perfect. I, too, did ran a community organizing organization for, for a decade, right? And I loved it. But it was really hard to, to spread a culture of organizing dappled with effective mobilizing. Right. What do you think it will take for, for more organizations to be able to shift to, like, what are, what stands in the way slash what do we have to overcome yeah. in order to spread this interesting, powerful culture? Yeah. So there's some, you know, when I talk to leaders and organizations that are trying to do this work, there are so many pressures against it, right? Because leaders of organizations are facing pressure to for, like, scale, 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 growth, 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 right? And, you know, I think that a lot of time, and, and, and there are other pressures. I don't mean that's the only one, but that's just sort of an example that comes to mind a lot. And I think a a lot of times what we do is that we mistake certain things as being the same thing when they're actually different from each other. So for example, I think we often mistake attention for commitment, right? So just because your organization is getting a lot of attention on social media or in the 
the, in the mainstream press or whatever, it feels like you have the power to make change. But the currency of value in social change is actually commitment, right? It's mm. do you have a group of people who you know will stand behind you and that you can actually deliver when push comes to shove? And to have that group of people, you need more than just attention, right? You need actual commitment. And the commitment is bred through organizing, Yeah. And I think very often leaders of organizations are under pressure to get things like attention, right? Or get to th- or get to scale in different ways, and they mistake that as an actual form of power when the actual power comes through commitment, you know? And so people ask this question of like so if if we know it works, then why aren't more organizations doing it? And I think that there's just it's like a there's a way in which On the one hand, the work that they're doing is so countercultural to the way that we think about our politics because so often there are so many people out there that think about politics as being like a consumer good, you know? Yeah. I'm going to go to the ballot box and I'm going to choose my candidate. I'm going to choose my party. I'm going to choose whatever in the same way that I choose ketchup at the grocery store. Mm. And those things are actually not the same, right? Like democracy is not a consumer good. If I'm if I'm a citizen or if I'm an agent in a democracy, then I'm a constituent, right? And the root word of constituent is to stand together, right? Like that's what that word means. And so am I standing with others? Mm. And so if I don't like the product, right? If I don't like the ketchup I get at the grocery store, I go buy a different kind of ketchup, right? Mm. But if I don't like what's going on in politics, I shouldn't just leave. What I should do is figure out how do I use my voice, right? How do I stand with others to be able to use my voice? But we, you know, we live in a culture where it feels like we mistake markets for politics, mm-hmm. right? We mistake attention for commitment. And there are these sort of kind of things that we confuse as being the same as each other when they're actually different. And so part of what we're trying to do in our research, um, you know, in my lab, is to try to clarify what some of those distinctions are so that we can make better strategic choices. Mm. Yeah, because it's almost like there's a market culture that's infected lots of not-for-profit organizations where oh, they want yeah. numbers and quantity, not quality of leaders. They want numbers of leaders. Like that's a, that's a sort of market quality too. Like you feel that in lots of not-for-profit organizations right. where people are seeking the wrong goals. Right. I mean, I think, and I, I should just be really clear, like numbers do matter. Right, we want them, right? Right, uh, yeah. exactly. And so I don't mean to say that they don't, but it's more just that, you know, sometimes I think we mistake scale for actual power, mm. right? Or we mistake efficiency for actual effectiveness, right? Mm. And what we actually want, like, yes, we want an efficient politics, but what we really want is an effective politics. Yeah. And what we really want is, you know, a politics that's going to sort of help us create the world that we all want, right? And that might be the most efficient way, but it might also, what we really want is to sort of be able to make the change that we desire. And that's almost like a second cultural challenge that I think a lot of organizational leaders have, which is, you know, a lot of organizations are in crisis. They're not, they've not, they're not increasing in number, they're declining in number, which makes people panic around some of these goals of wanting numerically large numbers of people to engage because there's a fear that there's not enough people engaging. Right. But also giving people the space to have commitment the commitment that you're describing to stand together, to have levels of autonomy, to be able to handle debate and disagreement in the membership of an organization is also something that scares, you know, scares people, scares leaders to have some of that discussion. Yeah. There's this great quote that I use all the time from this Jewish theologian who once said that hope is belief in the plausibility of the possible as opposed to the necessity of the probable. (laughs) And I love that idea because, um, like to me, this is why research, this is where research and practice come together because, 
you know, if we just do what we know how to do or what's easiest or most familiar, then we just reinforce the necessity of the probable, right? And what we need to do in order to develop good strategy is to be clear about what the sort of range of choices are so that we can make things that right now seem impossible more plausible, right? To make them more possible. When you talk about the work of organizing and the ways in which it's countercultural and this kind of marketized democracy that we live in, I think absolutely it's about thinking about how do we sort of create belief in the plausibility of the possible through the experiences that we create for people. Yeah. A sense of people's own power. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I want to just ask you, you know, in, in, the, in the last part of the interview, in the United States, one of the things that I've been interested in that you write about is this idea of distributed organising or mm-hmm. distributed networks. It's become cooler in more recent years, you know, with Indivisible and the ACLU talking about having, you know, 6,000 groups across the country and really getting to a scale of local organising. Can you tell people a little bit about distributed organising, what it is and, um, and what it's try- you know, what the idea behind its strength? Sure. You know, distributed organizing is not, um, it's not something new, right? (laughs) So if we look historically at organizations in the United States, like they've always had this sort of distributed structure where very often the biggest organizations had kind of a national state and local structure. And a lot of what we saw with the rise of like direct mail and mass media in the 1970s is that a lot of organizations moved away from that distributed structure to a more centralized structure because all of a sudden they realized, hey, we can reach all these people everywhere through direct mail without having to actually have a state and local unit. And and it was kind of like the allure of, you know, not needing that kind of distributed structure anymore. And so we saw actually a move away from distributed structures. But I think now you see the pendulum kind of swinging back, right? And the reason for that is because a lot of organizations are realizing that it's through these distributed structures that we actually build power. You know, yes, it is true that we can do the work of mobilizing and reaching a base um, without necessarily having that distributed structure, but you need the structure in place to be able to create vehicles and infrastructure through which people can exercise power. And so distributed organizing essentially is a strategy through which you're trying to develop campaigns and organizations that distribute the work of doing the organizing to sort of, you know, local groups around the state or the country or whatever it is that you're working on. Zach Exley and Becky Bond have a book that they wrote about the Bernie Sanders campaign, and they have this great line in there where they talk about distributed organizing, and the the point that they make, which I think is really right in the challenge of distributed organizing, is that you want the strategy to be national, but the work to be local. And so the strategic challenge in a lot of ways in doing distributed organizing is figuring out how do I chunk the work? You know, and you can chunk the work really easily in an electoral campaign, but an issue-based advocacy campaign, sometimes it's harder to figure out how you take the, the work and chunk it out into pieces that you can distribute out to teams. But it's through that distribution that teams develop the autonomy and the capacity and all the other skills that they need to be able to do the work of organizing. Mm. And so just, you know, I'm wanting to step this back into sort of a, a little bit of a reflection, I guess, about, yeah. about you know, you've, you've got this quite remarkable body of work for, <laughs> for someone who's not 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 crazy old, right? You've got all this. You've done all this research and had quite a lot of ex- extensive experience in politics as a, as it is. What are you What are you hoping that your contribution? Uh, what impact are you hoping that your contribution might make? That's a great question because I have existential crises all the time about whether or not I'm doing anything that's meaningful. But I think that 
through the work that I, so I have a deep belief in the importance of research, right? I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't. And I believe that it's important because it really, I think, helps sharpen the strategic choices that organizations make. And I think one of the things that I push back against is a lot of times people sort of say like, oh, you must do a lot of consulting work with organizations, right? And I feel like, no, because I'm not really doing consulting where I'm evaluating their work and telling them what's working and what's not working. What I'm doing is trying to sort of co-create learning with them where we draw knowledge both from the field and from you know, bodies of scholarship to be able to make better choices to sort of create democracy. And so when I think about the impact that I want to make, it's like, you know, I really hope that I'm helping to sort of create leaders and organizations that can push back against that marketized democracy that we were talking about earlier, that give people the tools and the strategic tools that they need to make choices that better create a democracy that really is a democracy that's powered by people. That sounds important. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, no, no, don't have an existential crisis about the creation of democracy. Yeah. <laughs> Leave that to Trump. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, in your lessons, I mean, look, you, there's a lot of research about the different practices, and we talked about organising and mobilising as particular practices of change. And you've also been involved in, in formal electoral politics as well. But, you know, putting all that research together, what do you think is the most striking lesson from your work as a change maker, what's the thing that really stands with you as the thing that you've you've garnered from from this research and the, your activism? I mean, honestly, it might sound a little Pollyanna-ish or a little pie in the sky, but I'll say that early on when I first got involved in politics, I remember one of my mentors kind of saying to me, the thing you have to understand is that people are people are people. And that has always stuck with me because I think that so often when we get caught up in these campaigns, um, you know, it sort of feels like, I mean, there's a couple ways in which it manifests itself. One is it can feel like, oh, the people I'm organizing are particularly hard to organize for some reason, you know, or it can feel like, oh, man, I hate the other side. Like, those are evil people and, and things like that. And I think, you know, growing up in the environment that I did, you know, with people who came from a lot of backgrounds and where I had to sort of negotiate difference all the time and doing the work that I do, one of the things I realized is that there are certain core principles about who we are as humans. And a lot of what we're trying to do through organizing essentially is to recover these very basic human principles and bring dignity to the work that we do together as people. And I think that just that fra that phrase, people are people are people, I think is one of the most useful things that I've learned that has always stuck with me in all the work that I've done. People are people are people. And thank you so much for being with us for this conversation. I know lots of people will get a lot out of being able to listening, listen to your work and they can follow it up in more detail by reading some of your your books, and I'm sure there's there's lots of stuff online as well with your your site and your lab, so people can follow that up as well. Yeah, and thank you so much for inviting me for having the conversation. It was really fun. It was my pleasure. A diet. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Our Changemaker Chats are produced by me. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerer. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org 
for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.